I want to start with a question, and that is this. <clears throat> I want you to envision your coming week. So think about your schedules and all that you have to do. And I want you to imagine that for one week, uh, the only way that you could get around is on your own two feet. Okay, so all you can do is walk. No cars, no bikes, no skateboards, no Heelys, however you would get around. If you own a private helicopter, off limits, right? You're just walking for one entire week, okay? Just really engage with that for a second. What would, what would change in your life? Just, just rhetorical question, right? Your week would alter, correct? Okay, now for the sake of just comparison, let me say something that, praise God, we don't have to fear this being true. In fact, we have, we have very clear teaching saying this isn't true. But let's say that for one week, the Holy Spirit were not present in your life. Let's say that for one entire week, you would not have the presence of God living in you. How would your week look different? Like specifically, how would your week be different? What would your expectations be? What would your schedule be like? Here's the question that I'm posing to us this morning as we dive into Romans 8 and consider life in the Spirit. What if, hypothetically, we would miss engine power and wheel power more tangibly than the Holy Spirit in the coming week if one were taken away? The power and presence of God in our life or the power and presence of engines and wheels and whatever else gets us around. I've been kind of noodling on this this week, and it's a penetrating question. I'm convinced that if you were to have nothing but the Old and the New Testament, and you were not to have all the scholarly writings that are available, that you were not to have the internet that's available, remember, for most of the world and for most of world history, Christians have had the Old and the New Testament, if that. If you were to read just the Old and the New Testament, what expectation would you have of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer individually and the life of the believers collectively, which makes up the church? Again, sort of a rhetorical question, but just think about what you know from reading the Old Testament and reading the New Testament. And then I want to invite you to sort of um, to, to ask this question. Um, is anyone wondering quietly to themselves for fear of causing a ruckus if perhaps we're missing something? If perhaps there is more available to us in our individual lives and in our marriages and our families and our jobs and our dreams... And then collectively, as not just this local body of believers, but, but as the believers of South Bay, as the believers of the Bay Area, as the believers in America and worldwide, is there something missing? Is there more? My sort of initial challenge to us is this. It's not something that's missing. It's someone that's missing. The person of the Holy Spirit, I feel, is often neglected in our churches and in our individual lives, and I'm thrilled that we're in Romans 8. I'm thrilled that we're in Romans 8 because for the month of May, we are going to take Romans 8 at a 
really kind of fast-paced when you think about it because there's so much there. But I hope, as always, that a Sunday morning, what it does is it whets your appetite to go and read some more and go and dive back into it some more and get more out of it. I want to invite you on a journey of more in the month of May. More of the ministry of God in spirit. Who in this room wouldn't want more power over their sin? Who in this room wouldn't want more confidence when you are facing a sure difficulty this coming week? Who in this room wants peace in their pain all the more? Who in this room would love more of an ever-present help and hope and hour-by-hour guidance, a counselor that's with us wherever we go? Romans 8, 9, which we'll look at in a second, says this, that all Christians have the Holy Spirit of God. To be a Christian is to possess the Holy Spirit. Or as we'll come to find out really more accurately, is to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. It's not something we have and contain and put in a jar somewhere. It's something that comes and fills us and possesses us. I want to assure you, you have no fear, and we'll get to this later in Romans too, but you have no fear, think about this for a minute, of ever spending one week without the Holy Spirit. Man, that that is really, really good news. The things that I know about that I'm facing this coming week actually kept me up a little bit. I struggle with the sin of anxiety. And it kept me up last night. I woke up at 2 in the morning to a child waking up. And I couldn't fall back asleep right away, which is abnormal for me. But I sat there and I, I thought about things that are coming up. And I hope your instinct is what my instinct is, which is to cast my anxieties on the Lord. Because, God, you care for me. Those are just the things I know about coming up. There's all kinds of things coming up in your week and my week that we don't know about. Praise God, we'll never face one week without the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you possess the Holy Spirit. Turn to Romans chapter 8 if you're not there already. The chapter is not primarily about the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is active all through the chapter. So all these promises, we just sang about the promises of God that we have, they're all, they're all enlivened and ministered to us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we've been reading Romans 1 through 7, it's long overdue that we get to have a mention of him that is more than just a little bit. Look back for a second in Romans 7, 6, where Paul writes this. He kind of teases us to what's coming. He says, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Imagine hearing those words for the very first time. You're, you're one of the Romans Christians, and you're like, man, it's not the old written law. We remember that. Like, that's terrible. None of us were good at keeping those principles. I couldn't even memorize those 613 commands, let alone keep them. And then he teases us with this new way of the Spirit we get to live. And then for the rest of the chapter, what does he do? He kind of takes a little detour into this wrestling match of flesh and spirit, right? Something we all track with. Well, here's what he does. He's coming back now to sort of, to sort of spell out for us what is, what is this new way of the Spirit all about. If you're taking notes, I want to just have you write uh, something on your notes. There's no fill-in for it, but just jot it down. There's one big central theme that I see in Romans 8, and it's this, assurance. 
Write down the words big theme and write down the word assurance. The chapter starts off with no condemnation at the beginning. And as you read all the way through, at the end you see no separation. It starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And this is the guarantee to every single Christian. The chapter is an amazing read on knowing that your relationship with God is settled and secure, period, done. If you are feeling wavering, if you are being whispered lies to, it is good to return often and drink from Romans 8 and say, man, these promises are for me. And let the Spirit of God confirm what you're reading in the Scriptures and let that re-solidify the truth in your heart and in your mind. Because this is an attack that the enemy comes against Christians all the time. I spent a lot of years as a youth pastor and up at Hume Lake where I went as a camper my wife went as a camper, and then for years and years, I had the privilege of bringing students up there, and God's just done amazing work. It's amazing when you get kids out of their normal routine, morning and evening, we get to hear from God's word, we get to sing together as a church, uh, as, a, as a group of church kids, and God just does some incredible things. One of the activities they have up there is called a high ropes course. Anyone been on the high ropes course at Hume Lake before? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of us have, have done that and been there. There's a, there's a feature called the Screamer. And the Screamer is um, the world's cheapest bungee jump, uh, really, because it's part of camp. You don't have to pay anything for it. And uh, I'm always too cheap to do a bungee jump. I always thought that'd be really fun. But the Screamer, you get to leap off of this platform. And what I would notice is this. Um, kid after kid would go and do this, and you'd see kids sometimes wrestling back and forth with whether they wanted to do it or not. In junior high, they, they were a little bit less concerned about their fear, but it was so funny to see like sophomore guys who were terrified of heights trying to play it off as cool. Um, and what you'd see up there is you'd see two kids, and one is clipped in and just leaping with pure joy, and one is clipped in and absolutely freaking out. And I thought about this as I was pondering this. The same exact promise is being made to both individuals, right? The promise is you will be safe. And if you're afraid of heights and you're kind of running through the scenarios, you'd be like, surely they couldn't even get insurance if this thing were dangerous. This thing has to be okay, right? So the same promise is being made. And here's the interesting thing. The exact same promise is being delivered to kid after kid after kid. Because the same person is on belay. The same harness is being used. The same ropes. The same platform. Everything's exactly the same. What's different between someone leaping and someone freaking? It's trust. One feels totally assured in it. Trust the promise being made. The other one isn't so sure or is almost certain that they're going to die, right? So, so I kind of looked at, at this and I thought, you know, um, man, this, this, is, this is life in the Spirit. We have the same promises. Christians around the world through the ages have had the same promises. The same God is the one doing the delivering. The same promise is actually being delivered. Some freak, some leap with trust. We talk about steps of yes a lot around here. 
And some steps are different than others, right? Some are plodding, and the next step feels like the last step. But there are certain times in our life where we kind of hit a fork in the road, and we say, I'm either going to say yes to what I know the plain teaching of Scripture is telling me to do, and, and it's a step of faith. It is absolutely a leap of faith. And it's basically you're putting yourself in a situation where you say, God, if you don't have me, I'm toast. I am not in control of this at all. Right? We got an amen from the back. Oh, preachers always love that. And so, and so this person, you know, is standing right on the edge. And you can go off this thing backwards if you dare. You can go forward, however you want to do it. But, but it's such a beautiful picture of how our life is. Thursday night, I was enjoying dinner with my lovely 16-year-old daughter. And we had a few minutes to just grab dinner one-on-one and having a blast and, um, and right in the, minute, in the midst of this, unexpectedly, um, I came across the funniest disposable cutlery I had ever seen. And it's not often that you're just living your life and then the funniest disposable cutlery appears you know, on the scene. Um, I was at a place called Noodle Company, okay? So here's, here's where we ate. And I'm going to show you what it says on the back, okay? And since you probably can't read that, I thought I would just, I thought I would just put it on here. Um, on, on these chopsticks, instructions, good luck. I just cracked up, and we both agreed that if we ever open a restaurant, we're going to add humor to the restaurant like, like they did. You know, I meet many people that absolutely and sincerely believe in God. They are not agnostic, meaning you can't really know. They're not atheists, saying there's definitely not a deity or a God. But they say, I'm absolutely convinced there's a God, but they are equally convinced that the help available to them is what's on these chopsticks. That the only help God has given to us is a well-wish of good luck. Let me say this, friends, that the help that God has left us available is not well-wishing us good luck. It's not leaving us with an instruction manual and say, hope you figure it out. Here's what it is. We have much more than good luck or instruction manual. We have God himself dwelling in us. God himself dwelling in us. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You think chopsticks are hard? Try living life, right? God's not a cruel father. God's a good father. So he doesn't leave us with a good luck with things. He's with us. I'm going to read Romans 8. And I want you just to do one of two things. I would invite you if it's helpful to you to follow along, I read from the ESV typically up here on a Sunday morning. Maybe it would be most helpful for you to just close your eyes and listen to the words um, this morning. So whatever, whatever is most helpful to you. As I read, let me just bring up a, a couple of synonyms that we're going to see in this section. And we'll kind of see it worded differently through Romans 8. These are all references to the Holy Spirit, but listen to the different ways in which it's talked so there's not confusion. In the Spirit, Spirit of God dwells in you. Spirit of Christ, Christ in you. Spirit of life, that's just five. We're going to get to some more. These are all references to the person of God in the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. So as I read these things, and as you see the rest in the New Testament, Christ in you. Well, how is that possible? The Holy Spirit. 
The spirit of life. What's that talking about? The Holy Spirit. Okay? So kind of listen for that as we read. Romans chapter 1, verse, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Would you pray with me? God, we have fun when we gather, but we don't take lightly or flippantly the words of you that have been preserved for us. God, we thank you for the gift of the truth of what was just read here in church. And God, I pray that right now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would speak to our individual hearts. God, give us a collective mind of Christ as we walk through these texts. Show us what we need to hear and learn. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're taking notes, I have this broken down just in a few ways, and you can kind of jot down some of these things. I want to just look briefly at what is true. What is true? Verse 1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. goes on to say that the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Paul has taken great pains for seven chapters to make it crystal clear that we ought not take divine condemnation lightly. Isn't it a common thing that you notice that people are really glib about divine condemnation? I mean, it's the source of endless humor. It's the source of joking. People gloss over it. So whether by ignoring their creator or directly violating posted signs, again, Paul has methodically laid out, you are guilty. Here are those who are uh, ignoring their creator. In Romans 1, it says, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. Catch this, so they are without excuse. 
Those are people who aren't Israelites. They don't have the written law. But then he moves on to, to the Jews themselves, and he says in Romans 3.20, <coughs> For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In summary, he says this. In Adam, we have condemnation. In Jesus Christ, we have no condemnation. Those are the two great big categories that he lays out for us. No condemnation is sort of the, the flip side way of saying that you're justified. Think about condemnation for a minute. It's the expression of very strong disapproval. Or perhaps the action of condemning someone to a punishment or sentence. That person was condemned to death. I thought about it sort of in secular culture, how I see it most spoken is this. We have so many horrific terrorist attacks going on all the time. Bad news upon bad news. And what happens is when some group commits a terrorist act and then they claim responsibility for it, the world leaders go on record of saying the U.S. categorically denies and condemns the acts of these people. Do you hear that? So that's a strong disapproval. It's like a formal, I condemn this. Now the crowds are really fickle as to what is condemned and what is celebrated. One year something's condemned, the next it is celebrated. Look no further than fashion, right? Fashion is that in a, in a huge way. Here's what's kind of shocking in my lifetime, and it's ramping up just very quickly. Look at sexual ethics. What is absolutely condemned in one season, blink your eyes, in another season, it's absolutely not condemned, but celebrated. This is the world we live in. So I don't really care what the crowds condemn. I want to look for a minute at Jesus. What would Jesus condemn? Jesus spoke openly about sin and about punishment. He had no problems calling people good and bad, righteous and wicked. Man, our sensitive, modern minds would freak out if Jesus were on the scene. How can you call me wicked? Well, I'm the son of God. So I don't know how we'd answer that. But Matthew 12, listen to this. Just, just listen. He says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? This is done in a very public setting to respected religious leaders. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, listen, and by your words you will be condemned. So there's a little snapshot of what Jesus condemns. It harkens back to Romans a little bit, even by your own standards, just by the words that you speak to other people and judge other people with. If you were to hold yourself to those same words, you would be found guilty. You'd be found a lawbreaker of your own laws, even if you ignore God's laws. Let me give you one more. Mark chapter 12 says this, beware of the scribes. These are kind of like the lawyers who are splicing up and determining what exactly the law says and how it's supposed to be interpreted. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and long greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses 
Watch this. And for a pretense, make long prayers. So he kind of sets up who he's talking about. Now listen to what he says. They will receive greater condemnation. So I've just read two examples. And what's interesting is if you wait the New Testament and just look at the words of Jesus, he sort of waits greater condemnation, watch this, on the self-righteous. I wonder if a part of why he does that is this. If you were to walk in right now to Best Buy and interact with one of its employees, that employee's behavior would reflect poorly or well on that company. It would kind of give indication of what the boss values. And Jesus came down really hard on those who were supposed to be representing God to the people. They were the shepherds that were supposed to be laying down their life for the sheep and instead were themselves getting fat. So he comes down really hard on the self-righteous because self-righteousness is the path away from God and toward death. So he says that they'd receive greater condemnation. What would Jesus not condemn? It would be good for us to get in our minds. What does Jesus condemn? What does he not condemn? Remember the story in John chapter 8 of a woman who's caught in the very act of adultery? And they bring her publicly. And they have the law and the leaders that both say the same thing. They condemn her to death. What will Jesus do? And they're doing this to test Jesus. Jesus exposes the guilt of everyone in the room in some way. We don't know exactly what it was, but he begins to write on the dust in the ground. Remember that? I don't know how this played out. But just imagine if in a public setting this were happening and everyone's wondering, what is Jesus going to do? And I were to come up right near Carl Smith and I were to write down parts of the law. Thou shall not Steal. And then I were to come over here to Mindy, and I were to just write something on the ground. Now, we don't know exactly how Jesus did this, but he begins to write in the dirt. And what does it say? One by one, they began to depart. All these leaders that were coming and throwing the book at this woman. And I think Jesus somehow did this with a look. You know how a look is more powerful than words sometimes? With a look, Jesus essentially said this. Do we really want to go down the road of giving people what they deserve? Because if so, let's start taking note. And he began to lay bare what we deserve. And so they all depart, and then this is the exchange. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. With a few words, he doesn't condone her sin, and he doesn't condemn the sinner. It seems that if you throw yourself at the mercy of the court, and you say, please don't give me what I deserve, I know that I'm a sinner, that's when Jesus does his best work. With a few words, he opens a brand new way, a brand new way of living and moving forward. Go and don't sin anymore. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. It's just such a beautiful encounter. 
One more, Mark chapter 16. This is the way Mark records the Great Commission. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The disciples are left with this message of hope to go and proclaim. It's a story of hope and rescue. Go and live this message out and proclaim this message boldly with your mouth. But if you've been attending this church for a while, you know it's also a message of warning. It's not just a message of hope. It's a message of warning. But whoever does not believe will be, there's the word, condemned. And this is colossal truth, friends. The whole world, whoever, that's everywhere and every one. For the Christian, there is now no condemnation. That little word now is powerful. If you're in, at all into studying the original language, go look at the Greek on the now. It's like the eternal now. You know when that is? It's right now. You know when it is? It's whenever it is for you as a Christian. Right now. There's no condemnation. You know why that's great news? Because if it was now in the past or now in the present, but you had to do something to keep it up, what if you died in doing something that you are wrestling with, like from Romans 7? And you didn't get a last-minute chance to ask forgiveness for that sin before you breathed your last breath. Do you see how you wouldn't be assured? Do you see how that at any minute you think, man, it's up to me to make sure I, I do the Lord's Prayer, or I say a, a word of forgiveness, or I, or I whatever. It's right now, because it's settled and done and over with. So how is this true? I want you to look at verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful uh, flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I think I first memorized Romans 8 in high school. I was probably challenged by one of my small group leaders to do it. And I tell you, as I've been studying this passage, don't you read Romans 8 differently once you've walked kind of painstakingly through the argument of 1 through 7? How is the law weakened by the flesh? Well, the law is weakened by the flesh because sin in you takes the law which is good and it sets up a fob. Remember that? A forward operating base. It sets up this little thing. It says, that's where we're going to have camp and I'm going to run missions out of that because the law has this way of being a magnet and actually inciting more wickedness out of us. Remember that? So when I read this, it's just so encouraging. Romans 8 is filled with things that you would sort of sew and put on something and frame and hang on your wall. It's filled with little posters that would sell really well at, at bookstores and stuff. But here's the problem. If we take things that God's going to work everything together for our good, that God will never leave us, that, we're, that there's no condemnation for those in Christ, if we don't have sort of the, the understanding of ruin, the reality of what went on with redemption, then what happens is that's like a little mint that we take, and it's kind of sweet, and we suck it on, and we go, woohoo! There's no substance to it. So what, we go back to the wall? Do we start to rub the promise and hope that somehow, God, get that truth in me. I feel really guilty and condemned. I know there's no condemnation. Man, don't rub, don't rub the little embroidery. Go back and read Romans 1 through 7. 
Because when you read Romans 1 through 7 and you really get an understanding of it, you say, yeah, the law is weakened by the flesh. That means God did what only God can do. Here's the beauty. God does, present tense, what only God does. And so that song that we had fun with singing rings true. And the number of goals I score, (laughs) it's not what I'm about. All these different ways that people measure me and grade me and place me, that's not what I'm about at all. I am completely yours, God. And there's an assurance to Romans 8. My prayer all week long is God give us as a church. I'm convinced we'll live utterly differently if we have the assurance of the message that Romans 8 provides. How does he do it? You know, every day is Christmas for a Christian. My wife this week baked a ham and sweet potatoes. We don't have ham and sweet potatoes in the middle of May. It's just not our normal thing. But I walked in, and the glaze and everything that was going on, I wished everyone in the household a Merry Christmas because it just felt like the holidays to me. Well, the kids and I grabbed onto this, and while we're waiting, I think we drove my wife a little bit more insane. We sang Christmas carols like the entire time with full gusto, and Everly and Tate, our three-year-olds, were looking around going, I guess near the end of May, we just sing Christmas carols again. I'm not sure what's happening, but it was really, really fun. But but in looking at this passage, I mean, isn't this the Christmas story? God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh. He's the perfect lamb of God. And so, catch this. Every day is Christmas for a Christian. I mean, I really believe we can go back to this place of saying every day is Christmas for a Christian because this, there's no bigger gift than Jesus taking all of our condemnation. There's no bigger gift than that. The fact that he killed death and he killed sin forever means that we have power over those things, means we don't have to live in fear or in bondage of those things anymore. Tell me, what can get you down if your name is written in the book of life? Honestly. I mean, eternity's here. Your life is here. What on earth is going to get you down if you know you have eternity and my arms can't go far enough, can they? Pretend I have arrows on my pointer finger, right? I mean, what could possibly get me down? Is there any bigger gift? Is there anything I should be looking forward to more than the fact that my name is written in the book of life? What are the results of this? The results are laid out in in verse 4 and following. It says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, there's nothing left to condemn us. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. The fine has been paid. There's no record. God did it. It's that perfect resume that we talk about a lot around here. And it's not just that our wicked track record is dismissed, no condemnation, but it's also that we gain Jesus' perfectly lived life. Listen to the wording of this. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. When the judge looks at you, you are perfect. Why? Because of Christ's covering. 
It's a robe that covers our nakedness, and God sees us as pure and holy and spotless. All the good things you've thought of doing, but your procrastinating weakness has prevented you from doing it. All those things you wish you wouldn't do and, 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 you, and you wish you would stop. The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us. It's not only justification, but life and peace. Sometimes seeing words sort of highlighted in a text shows you um, some, big, some big themes that jump out. This is just a screenshot from a Bible program that I use, and this is how many times the word spirit shows up in these first 11 verses. Now watch the screen. Here's how many times the word flesh shows up. Do you see that? Spirit and flesh are just kind of contrasted and compared in this passage. Back and forth, Paul is going with this. And what he's doing is this. He's contrasting Christians and non-Christians. Those who possess the Spirit and those who don't possess the Spirit. One really important note is this. He's not giving instruction. Elsewhere we see, Colossians is one. Set your mind on the things above. That's an action on our part. This is not instruction. We're not being commanded to do something. He is stating a fact here. He's simply saying this, your nature will determine your mindset. The mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. He's not saying don't set your mind on the flesh and do set your mind. He's just stating a fact. One's nature determines one's mindset. So what does in the flesh living look like? Well, it's viewing life strictly from a human standpoint. So the mind is preoccupied with this life. Aren't there a lot of worries for today and tomorrow? Yeah, a ton of them. How many solutions do we have running around? A ton. The mind set on the flesh is preoccupied with the solutions that, that this world has to offer to the problems that this world creates. The mindset on the flesh is ever pursuing the comforts and the entertainment and, and the enjoyment that this life has to offer. The passage says really bluntly, it's also hostile to God. It's unsubmissive to God. Not only does it lead to death, the mindset on the flesh will never please God. It's impossible. Because pleasing God is a work of the Spirit. Do you ever accidentally learn something? Isn't that the best? I mean, sometimes I try and try and try to learn something, and I don't learn it. And other times I just accidentally go, oh, there you go. I accidentally learned something on Tuesday. Uh, this is the exercise. Go and study Romans 8. I mean, genuinely do this. This would be a fun exercise. Go and study Romans 8, 1 through 11 for just one hour. And study it because you're going to teach it to one other person. Pick one other person that you say, they need to hear this message. I'm going to soak and study in Romans 8 so that I can teach it to someone else. That was my Tuesday. And then, Tuesday's cheap night at the movies, so once in a great while, my bride and I slip away to the movies. So then after one hour of studying Romans 8 with the intent to teach someone else, go to Oak Ridge Mall. Oak Ridge Mall, like all malls, are worship halls intent on the flesh. 
I parked my car. I began to walk into the mall. I passed a store called Hollister. Hollister was having a sale for women's shorts at 50% off. It wasn't a deal because there's 50% of the shorts there. <laughs> I intentionally hang a left because I don't want to walk near a store that's next to there. Because there are posters flooding the mall with what the world would crudely call eye candy. So I go to the food court. You know what the food court is doing to me? Giving me free food. Everywhere we go, there's blackened chicken, and there's this kind of thing, and there's that kind of thing. And so Becky made the comment, we make one more lap, we don't need to buy dinner tonight. Right? It's good when two cheap people marry each other. It's kind of good. What are they doing? They're enticing your stomach, right? We were really hungry. It, tasted, it all tasted kind of good, to be honest. So, so here it is enticing us. And then what we did is we walked up some stairs, and we sat down in a movie theater, and we caught live-action version of Beauty and the Beast. Great experience. And what that movie did was this. It appealed to our senses, our eyes, our emotions, our ears with surround sound, and, and the whole experience, right? And as I'm sitting there at dinner talking with Becky, I said this to her. I said, Becky, all day long, I've been thinking about life in the flesh, the mindset on the flesh, and the mindset on the spirit. And I come here, and it is honestly, it is like, like just overload. And you know what I, you know what I caught like clear as day? There's nothing for my soul at the mall. Nothing. They can't do it. There's nothing that feeds my soul at the mall. Zip. Man, if I had one day to live or one week to live, I would not go to the mall. I don't really go to the mall anyways. But I would know, man, talk about just a, a quick fix that has no lasting anything. You do that. You go spend one hour in Romans 8 and then just go take my path and, and, and it'll hit you in a fresh way. I live in this world. This is where I was born and raised. So we can get really numb to these things, can't we? Life in the spirit, life in the flesh. So let me wrap up with this. What, what should it look like? Think about this. What should it look like if the very spirit of Jesus Christ lives in you? Look at Romans uh, eight eleven one more time. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I do know this, that whether it is grieving loss or giving generously or courageous truth-telling or enduring sickness or on and on and on I could go, those who are possessed by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, ought to look completely different from those who lack the Holy Spirit. There ought to be just a noticeable difference. And not just among insider Christians who are looking for this. It ought to just exude from our lives. Since possessing the Spirit of Christ is the mark of every single believer, I want you to think about this for a minute. The same word in the Hebrew and the Greek that talk about the Spirit both have to do with wind. 
I want you to imagine for a second that you're a surfer and you tell all of your surfer buddies that something special has happened to you and you now can personally harness the power of the wind. And all your enthusiasm and faith has their curiosity peaked and you go out for a surf session uh, Monday morning at 6 a.m. and you paddle around like all of your buddies and like you've always done. And you sit on your board waiting for waves to come like all of your buddies and like you've always done. And you catch waves and you rip it up and you have fun like you've always done. And after a couple of hours, do your friends have the right to be suspicious of this newfound power? Of course they do. Hey, I thought you could like harness the power of the wind. Now, consider this. What if in contrast... You told one of your buddies, here, hold this thing right here, and you walked this way down the beach, and you clipped in, and you got in the water, and you shot off like a rocket. And all of your buddies, who had never seen kiteboarding at the time, were left just shocked and stunned. Because in a few minutes, you're catching air that's as tall as a two-story building and landing safely. All of a sudden, they would get it and say, yeah, that's completely different than any surf session we've ever experienced together. Here's my question for you. Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your pastors, for you. Does your life make sense? Does your life make sense? With the plain teaching of Scripture that every single Christian possesses the Holy Spirit, the very same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, does your life make sense? I think if a Christian's life makes sense with their beliefs, it doesn't make sense to many, many, many people in our lives. I think Christians ought to constantly be bombarded with the world's wisdom on how they should be handling things because it doesn't make sense. Think about it. If I'm living for eternity and I'm possessed by the Holy Spirit, my life ought to not make sense to most people I come in contact with. I've never done this before, but here's a few things I know about kiteboarding. Number one is this. It's not for comfort lovers. Think about flying a kite and then strapping yourself to it and going surfing. That's kind of what kiteboarding is, right? So if you love comfort and the couch and a remote, don't go kiteboarding. Here's secondly. Kiteboarders require help in the form of wind. If you do not have wind, you do not go. You just sit still. And thirdly, you have no control over the help that you receive. Your phone and your apps, they can kind of tell you what may be coming, but you have no control over it. You simply harness and channel it and then experience it and be thankful for it. Think about how much this is true of life in the Holy Spirit. You know what I would call the Christian life? I would call it one who just, who just clips in and is committed. It's not for the faint of heart. The Christian life is not for the faint of heart. Jesus said this over and over. Secondly, no Holy Spirit, no go. I mean, both words, Hebrew and Greek, talk about the Spirit in the form of wind. And thirdly, you have no control over God's Spirit. It's exactly the opposite. The Spirit of God controls you. I think maybe that's why we're sometimes fearful. We're actually fearful of really hearing from God and really engaging with God's will because we're fearful of the steps he may ask us to take. We're freaking out instead of leaping on the screamer.
Look at John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. Here's why this is a broken metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit isn't just out there. The Holy Spirit is in here. Everyone do this for one quick minute. Take in a really deep breath, okay? Do you feel that in you? It's more than just breathing in air and having it fill your lungs. There's like a rush of energy when you've been breathing at a normal pace, and then you just go, and you just take in a huge gulp of air. Now, here's where that breaks down. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force that you somehow harness with a sail or with enough checkboxes of the Bible. The Holy Spirit is a powerful personality that you relate to, and he dwells in you. I want to invite the band to come up right now. We're going to sing a song called Deliver Me. And I want to go back to the word condemnation as we do. Because you see, the word condemnation is sort of like a fruit-bearing problem in our lives. Here are some of the things that condemnation bears. Disappointment. Self-loathing. Shame. Guilt. Fear. And hiding. I want you to listen for two very specific things in this song. One is this idea of coming out of hiding. To really engage and meet with Jesus, we have to come out of hiding. Secondly, listen for this line, your strength inside me. That is not just a hallmark platitude. That is not something you should just slap up kind of glibly on the wall as a poster. There is truth that surrounds that, that gives foundation to it, that your strength inside me is real. Let's sing this song together.